I'm Jacob Tackett. And I'm Dylan Curtis. And this is the I'm Wondering Podcast. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, so glad that you were with us. I think this is episode 26. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it is. I think Lent was 25, so... Here we are, episode 26, and you know what? This is our first, very first episode that was suggested by a listener. Yeah. Uh, Our friend Michael, who's been listening, uh, gave us this one. And let me tell you, Michael, because you're going to be listening, because you suggested it. (laughs) uh, This is not an easy one, man. This Uh is a a hard topic, Um, and it's it's a good, necessary, important topic that, that the church, you know, should talk about. Uh, so I'm glad we're doing it, but at the same time, it's it's going to be tough. Um, this is probably the hardest it's ever been for us to put together an episode. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time on it. Uh, we went back and forth on a lot of ways we could cover it, because um, it could be a thousand episodes. Um, and the topic is sex. Oof. So here we go. I've always heard pastors say that anytime sex is the topic for the weekend, the church attendance is always the highest. So we'll see with the podcast, yeah. <laughs> or it might scare people off. We don't know, yeah. but uh, I think it's good. We'll report back next week with our numbers. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll let you know the following week how it went, and when there's like two plays, we'll know. I wonder. This just popped in my head. I wonder when we upload this to Anchor if we need to put the explicit button on there. Like you oh, can yeah. choose explicit because we're talking yeah. about sex. So, we are talking know. about sex, but there are no explicit words. So, but the topic could be explicit. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get <laughs> I it. I seriously almost just said the f words. Don't, just so don't, you have don't to ble- do that. So you have to bleep it out. Don't do that. Yeah, we could just start beeping words that aren't <laughs> curse words, and everybody thinks we're being bad. Anyways, um, you know what? We're just gonna go for this. Let's do it. All right, we're back. Coffees are full. I got my grapefruit Topo Chico here. I'm in the zone. You're so bougie. I'm ready. You are so bougie. Undeniable. I'm I'm bougie. Google that if you don't know what bougie means. Yeah. And there's a few different spellings, so I just kind of figure it out. But yeah, Google will correct it for sure. Here we are. Um, my goodness. Yeah, we can talk about sex. Um, so here we go, and kind of like the idea of. You know, sex as a sin, sex in the confines of being made by God, how the church has done it. Uh, So yeah, we're just going to kind of dive in here. And so in my opinion, and I think that's a stress opinion, we need to stress this. In my opinion, uh, for way too long, the church has had language and messaging around sex as don't view porn, don't masturbate, don't make out, don't sleep around. Don't sleep together before you get married. Don't, 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 don't. And while I will say I do believe these things, I do see these as true, how often does speaking to actions in life in a negative aspect ever work out? Now, for those of you who have ever been in an argument, which I am assuming is all of us, um, how many of you have ever said in the middle of an argument, relax or just calm down, how does that go for you? Does that ever work out? Oh, super well. Super well. I 
doubt it, probably not very well. And so for me, we need to start, when we're talking about things like sex, we need to talk to them in more of a positive light and not just as a condemning negative view. Yeah. Um, because it, when we talk, start conversations in a negative light, negative tone, negative connotations, um, it's just not going to go anywhere uh, very well. Just like getting in an argument and telling someone to calm yeah. down. It's not going to end well. Or, or, you know, providing the why, which I hope we do a good job of. Cause I think oftentimes, especially with sex and there's other topics in the church, you say, don't, don't, don't like you just said. And a lot of times students, and you know, this as a youth pastor ask why, why, why? Yeah. And when we just say, Oh, cause God said so. And don't <laughs> actually explain it further than that. It usually doesn't work, yeah. and and so you take something if you want to take scripture like something that's in the dark and you bring it to the light. When you don't do that, uh, even in church, it just goes farther. I think into the dark of someone's life and becomes more and more hidden. Yeah. Um. So it is important that we kind of bring this into the light. If bring you it into light. Yeah. I taught on this a while back. Of like, I've, here at the church is we oftentimes rebel in our human nature. It's just human nature to rebel when someone tells you not to do something. And I know in my youth, even in my adulthood, like uh, most of the times where I've gotten in trouble is when someone has told me not to do something and then left it at that. Well, okay, I'm going to go do it. Um, We have to educate the people we're talking to and not just say don't do something, but give them reasons why. So we're going to do that a little bit um, here in this podcast, Um, but kind of what I want to touch um, base on here first is, have you ever read Genesis, which I hope you have, um, and realized that we were sexual before we were sinful? Let me say that again. If we read Genesis, we can see that we were sexual before we were sinful. And sex is not an evil curse and we ha- that we have to um, curb and deny. And it's, it's a gift that we get to enjoy as long as it's in the right context. Well, What's that context? I'm glad you asked. Um, (laughs) Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 24 says this, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, that obviously opens Pandora's box. Again, that is my opinion. That is my um, interpretation of Scripture. I do believe the context of marriage is between a man and a woman. Yeah. Um, and the right and godly context that we are to enjoy um, sex. And it is the gift that God has given us. But um, again, sex is something that I feel like we should just talk about. It shouldn't be taboo. It sure. shouldn't be awkward. It shouldn't be that one time a month in February every year that we talk about sex in the church because it's love month. Like that's the typical student ministry programming. Um yeah, um, I think we should be talking about this, and so yeah. we're gonna a little bit more now. Yeah, I and something that I had never thought of, which is maybe kind of sad, um, is that idea that we were sexual before we were sinful. I mean, I know the creation account like the back of my hand because I have heard it so many times. I, yeah. I like you studied it in seminary multiple times, wrote big papers on it. But I had never really put together that idea of God says, be fruitful, multiply, basically be intimate, enjoy each other before the fall ever occurs. Yeah. Um, so it's in our nature. Uh, I would say it's it's a built-in part of humans that we are sexual and that that, that is a good gift from God. 
uh, which then I think kind of gets into the next sort of topic with this, which is our nature and kind of this idea of what went wrong, where is sexual sexuality, where is sex wrong? And I think that does stem towards, or from, I should say, Genesis 3 in the fall. So there's these two kind of things of sin, and, and sin gets said a lot. We say the word sin a lot. We don't necessarily explain it a lot. And, and I've had people, even recently, who have been lifelong Christians who are like, well, describe sin. Yeah. How does that work? And, and I think a lot of us have had that question of not just what is sin, but, but how do you understand it? And so I think there's two pieces that will be helpful for this conversation today and, and just in general um, for those of us who believe in Jesus. Uh, so I, I would break sin into two categories, and this also comes from our seminary. This is kind of what we're taught, and I know that there's probably differ, di- differing views on so sin. Many. But I found this really helpful. So there's the nature of sin, and there's the effects of sin. So back to that nature piece that we we were created sexual before sinful. With the fall, we now have a nature of sin, which means we have a propensity, and I would say is inescapable that we will sin, uh, which I would categorize sin as anything that is contradictory to the way God made the world and intended us for us to live. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, with sex, of course, love, uh, love, <laughs> that that is not, <laughs> that's not, uh, lust, of course, to, to desire someone purely for pleasure's sake, um, and not out of a, out of love or, yeah. or wanting to be intimate with the person you love. Um, and then also, of course, you know, selfishness, we see that a lot, um, even in relationships, which is part of sex, right? Even if you're not engaging in the physical activity, being in a relationship, intimate, but doing it for your own sense of security or like whatever other reason, that the nature piece of us, the nature of sin piece of us pushes us towards that. And I would say those are sinful things. So that that then, ble- this is, it's kind of hard to talk about, yeah. but that bleeds into the effects, which is like the manifestations, the actual acting out of. Um, so that nature of sin, maybe with pornography, your your bent is lust, right? That's the nature. You're drawn to that as a human. Um, and then the effects is actually watching pornography and taking part in that. Um, so those are just two different pieces that I think are are good to understand, maybe a short way of putting it, which is how I put it on the notes, but I can't be short about it. Nature of sin is the propensity towards sin, yeah. to sin, and then the effects of sin are the actual actions of partaking in those propensities. That might be the quicker, easier way to put that. Right. And, and sure, yes, it's the quicker and the easier way, but there's nothing easy about the nature and the effects of sin because now there's just so much to divulge. And I think kind of what we're talking about now is in this idea of sex um, is more of on the effects of sin um, and how many roads that opens up once we um, kind of put our foot in the water and start... Dip your toe. Dipping our toe. Um, So for me, um, Christianity sees sin not just outward acts, but even more as an inward disposition or this idea of who our character is. Um, I think we all um, have a nature to sin, and so then the... which is the... um, 
inward disposition and then the effects of sin can sometimes be seen for me as the outward acts of sin. And um, for me, some people embrace their fallenness and act out, act it out in more radical and damaging way than others. Um, talking about sin, I th- as we were kind of prepping for this, uh, this morning and stuff, we were talking about what's the worst sins. And we're just started talking about, you know, murder and things like all, you know, obviously we make a huge list of, um, sins that we think are maybe, um, more damaging than yeah. others. Um, and that came up because the person who suggested this had pointed out that the church often seems to put sexual sin above a lot of other sins. Yeah. He had mentioned, um, why does the church, um, cast out the person who may be practicing in a homosexual relationship, right. but embraces and prays for the alcoholic. Sure. Um, and yeah, so we can dive into that another time, but um, because we have this idea of some sins are greater than others, um, sin is not equal in terms of human standards and judgment, um, but they are all equally damaging and alienating us from God and God from us. And so, yeah, sin is sin. Um, and we want to put our human thoughts, our human side into viewing sin when we should be seeing it from, with a lens of how God sees sin sure, um, and trying to not um, rate those. And I suspect that uh, the reason people claim that all sins are equal is so that they don't have to do anything about their sin in their own lives other than repent or in the lives of other Christians. So yeah, not all sins are equal on a human level, but um, are eternally in the in the eyes of God probably yeah equal because they alienate. No matter if we like a book said like no matter if we murder somebody or reuse a stamp twice, like right they all those sins both separate us equally from yeah. God and alienate us from Him. So in that sense, yeah, sure, sins are equal. Um, and the, but the effects of sin um, probably aren't as equal. Right, right, yeah. I mean, especially from a human level. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous to imply that using a stamp twice is equal to murder. <laughs> right. Um, which, you know, good point. And I think, I think what's really a good reminder for me uh, from what you said is, is this idea that using the sin of others to not think about our own sins or to be sober-minded in the ways that we're sinning. That is important. And Jesus talks about the speck in the plank, right? Yeah. Um, and that's Matthew something. I'm not remembering off the Matthew top of my head. Matthew 8, 9. Yeah, is, something like that. Is that in? You can Google it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's also in the Lenten devotional if you're part of our church. Um, but yeah, I mean, we are so often... We put we put sins on a pedestal to ignore our own sin. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, and I've seen this happen quite a lot, we really hammer on certain sins that we ourselves are struggling with. Yeah, um, I actually saw this. I went to New Life Church. It was one of the. It was the first church I really went to, um, and Ted Haggard was the senior pastor. And some of you probably remember this, but Ted Haggard was a very outspoken critic of homosexuality. Um, and not even the kind of person who said we should we should love those who are homosexual. I disagree with it, but we should love them. Not even that. Like he just straight, they're the worst people ever. It's the worst sin. Well, he then later got caught actually having an affair with a male prostitute, uh, and is and also was into drugs. So 
he was, in a sense, it's kind of like he was going at that sin, yet he himself was clearly dealing with it. And yeah. so sometimes we use that. I think we go at those sins that actually affect us most um, because of our own insecurity or unwillingness to yep. look at ourselves. Ugh. Yeah. Heavy. It, it is very heavy. So kind of moving along, kind of keeping keeping this bus going, uh, what does the Bible say? Um about all of this, what does it? What does the Bible say? Not only about sin, but this idea, this broader topic of sex. Um, and so, we're going to talk. A, I'm going to talk a little bit um, about the creation story. And I know we all know about it. We all we all have heard it. We know the creation story. But I kind of want to run through this um, from top to bottom, and then talk a little bit um, moving into Genesis. Um, chapter two, just to kind of go back to this idea that we were uh, sexual before we were sinful. So as we look at creation um, in Genesis one, uh, God created light and divided it from the darkness. And then um, day two, whether it's 24 hours or not, that's another topic. Um, <laughs> God created atmosphere and divided it from the oceans. Um, then he created land and divided it from water. He, in that day, he also created vegetation. Um, so please, plants to create seed, trees to create fruit, things like that. Uh, then he created the sun, moon, and the stars uh, to fill the sky. Day five, um, creatures created to fill the sky and the water. Uh, then he um, created creatures to fill the land, uh, man created as his pinnacle of creation. Um, and then he rested from all of his work. And so as we kind of look at creation and move um, through uh, Genesis 1, it's important that we look that. Um, when it comes to sex, when it comes to who we are, how God created, is we are more than our sexual identity. We are more than just sex. Um, yes, we were sexual before we were sinful, but we're more than that. And I think that shows um, through how God created, um, and not only how He created, but how He was intentional in creation, um, how He it was intentional in creating humanity in His image. Um, because if we take these days and kind of start flip-flopping them, they begin to not make sense on a scientific level uh, because they wouldn't work. Um, so, in, for instance, if God created man and animals before he created land and water and vegetation, they're going to starve to death, right? They're yeah. not going to be able to live. If, um, the, um, if things were created before the atmosphere, obviously there's no oxygen and things like that. And so I just see there's so much intentionality around how God created um, just goes to prove that we are more, um, we have more identity than just um, our sexual identity. And as we move into um, towards the end of Genesis here, I'm going to scroll down here in my Bible, um, Genesis 2 at the end, um, God says in verse uh, 24, I don't think I'm jumping ahead of myself here. Yeah, uh, verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and joined to his wife, and the other are two, are, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so, yeah, I just think it speaks a lot to um, how God created us. There is no shame in our sexuality. There is no shame in how God created us to be sexual. It says here, they had no shame. Um, and so I think there's just a lot of intentionality that we need to see um, in that and not be 
ashamed to talk about it. Shouldn't be ashamed, and it shouldn't be a dirty thing. Like sex yeah. isn't dirty. Um, how God created us to be sexual isn't dirty, and we should stop making people feel guilty about that. Oh, that's no fun though. <laughs> the church likes to shame people. It does. Sorry, church. I, I and it is really important to me to separate that idea of we are we are more than just our sexuality. Because especially, and in, in people will probably hear that and think mainly about homosexuality, right? Yeah. But even the het- in heterosexuality, in what most of us probably fall under, I mean, statistically we do in America, that's, that's easy to look up, so I'm not just making an assumption. Um, but even within, like me being a man, there are so many things that come along with that in American culture, right? Mm-hmm. For a long time, it was always, you can't be emotional, you can't cry, that's not manly. Uh, you had to be the breadwinner, and if you're not the breadwinner, yeah, that's shameful. Uh, you always have to suck it up, like you never asked for help. So there are things that even in uh, like heterosexuality, which is obviously accepted within the church, there are a lot of, I would say, toxic aspects to it as well that we don't address or talk about all that much. We'll say, oh, Jesus wept. And like that's where we stop. Yeah. But we don't necessarily address also the the norms that come along with each of our genders and how those also I think can overdefine us and pull us away from understanding that we're made in the image of God. Um, and that all feeds into as well, in my opinion, a lot of sexual practices. Cause like a alpha male is able to get whoever whatever woman he wants and it's just easy to see how that all ties together. And yeah. if we over-identify with that, we then, our nature being the way that it is, pushes us towards acting out in ways that feed into that and then manifest sin, basically, because we're trying to be macho man or we're trying to be mm-hmm. what have you. And then if we're not, we're shameful. Mm-hmm. So it is important to remind ourselves that you, me, everybody, the primary thing that defines us is that we were made in God's image. Um, end of story, period. That's the starting place for all of us and what our value is. Yeah. Um, and obviously people don't believe that, and so that's a whole different thing. But as a Christian, I believe that um, and think it's an important anchor, and especially in treating when we deal with people who are different or think different. Um, let's move into some New Testament. Um, so, of course, we have Paul writing to the Corinthians in this section. And let me tell you, the Corinthians were not Paul's best friend. Uh, if you look at all the letters, I, the Corinthians were the ones... He had to write two letters, for one. Um, that's a thing. He also wrote two to the Thessalonians. But I think Corinthians, if you put the first and second Corinthians together, it by far dwarfs the length of any other letters he wrote to peoples, different people groups, because they were very rebellious types of people. Corinth was a very sexually charged uh, city. Uh, The church itself uh, was dealing a lot with that issue. And so he's writing to them in 2 Corinthians. This is chapter 12, verse 21. He says, I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And he means when he visits um, them again. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. So, what is he saying there? Because uh, it's easy to read that and go, see, <laughs> sexual sin, Sinner. debauchery, impurity, 
that's not what I think Paul is is lamenting. I think what he's lamenting are there's two things. One, he's lamenting these practices people are indulging, which drive them further and further away from God. That's one of his main main reasons for saying it grieves me, um, because your your indulgence in those things is taking you away from God, um, which they certainly do. It's easy yeah. for people to be um, pulled away by that. Um, so I think that's one thing. And the second thing is that God readily offers reconciliation and redemption, and they're not taking him up on that offer, if you will. So he has given us freedom in Christ, and they're choosing to be stuck in their sexual sin. And this is a reality for all things, not just sexuality. We're all owned by something. Um, We may not think it, um, but we're all owned by something. And whether we choose to embrace Christ and his goodness as being the thing that, that we are slaves and servants to, or whether we choose other things in life, we are all, all owned by something. Um, and people, I think, forget that and don't realize that. So would you rather be a slave to your sin and your sexual sin and impurity and seeking after all these pleasure, pleasure things, or would you rather be a slave and servant to Jesus? Um, and I think Paul's trying to invite them back and encourage them to come back to Christ. Um, so I think that's what he's he's lamenting over. And I think this can easily be weaponized because um, mm-hmm. it has been. And a lot of the, if you just Google, which I did, hey. uh, I don't know the Bible front and back. So don't, <laughs> don't shame me for that. But even if you Google, there's a lot to do with sexual sin throughout Scripture, a lot in the New Testament. And all of it... Um, when you read those, can be weaponized and said, see, this is this is the problem. But Paul's really lamenting more than anything um, that they are being driven away from God by these sexual urges. More, more than anything, that's Paul's biggest thing, uh, not to be Mr. Judgmentalism and say, you're wrong, change your ways, right? He's, he's saddened, he's brokenhearted over this because he knows what that means for their life. Um, and that's important. I think that repentance, reconciliation piece is really important because ultimately being in relationship with God is um, incomparable and is a life that's far better than any pleasure we may find yeah. sexually or otherwise. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for me, uh, some theologians and such like argue that there's no one single like theology of Scripture or one theme of Scripture, uh, because there's just so many that you can't just pick one. And so I'm kind of in agreement with that. I can see that. But I think weaved all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we see God's reconciliation acts. We see God attempting to reconcile with with people. We see God trying to um, urge us towards repentance and ushering us back to Jesus, back to Him. We should have an episode on that, because I feel like there is one big overarching theme, if you will. Yeah. And I won't give away what I think it is right now, but that'd be fun. Put, got them in suspense. I like it. Um, but for me, I think all throughout Scripture, we see this, like God, like I said, God ushering us towards repentance. And there is a section in Scripture um, that I think speaks to this idea of sexual immorality, sexual sexuality as people, us engaging in sex, um, what that looks like. Um 
And there is some debate among scholars and theologians around this piece of Scripture, uh, because in some instances in early manuscripts it's not there. Um, There's a bunch of reasons why it could not be, but for me, yeah. So if you'll go in your Bibles and go to John um, chapter 8, there you'll see some Scripture 1 through 11 that's italicized, and that's because some people don't think it was originally in Scripture. Well, for me, I don't know, it's there. Um, and I think it has some, I think some it's, truth. Yeah, I think it's theologically true, yeah. and it fits Jesus's character. Yeah. So, Regardless of yeah. if this actually happened or not, um, we're, we're going to base off of it. So basically what happens is the Pharisees catch this woman in the act of committing adultery, and so I've taught on this, and there's a lot going on. Like, how did these Pharisees just, like, happen to catch her, like— Where's the man in all this? I think it was a setup. Um, I think this may have been a Pharisee who was having sex with this woman. Um, And that's how they, I'm air quoting here, caught her in the act of adultery. And so they caught her, catch her in this act. They bring her out in front of this huge crowd and Jesus is there and they throw her in front of Jesus and says, Jesus, we caught this woman um, in the act of adultery. Um, What is, you know what the law says? What should we do? And basically they're trying to trap Jesus into um, saying, yes, you caught her, stone her to death, um, which would have been against Roman law because she would have to go in front of a jury, yada, yada, yada. And so they're trying to trap her. And instead, you know, Jesus twice kneels down in the sand and he draws in the sand, um, writes something in the sand when we don't know what it is. Um, and essentially G- they're pressing him and Jesus looks up at him at the Pharisees and says, let whoever has never sinned before cast a first stone. And of course, then um, from the oldest to youngest, the Pharisees start dropping the stones and leave. And Jesus looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Haven't any one of them accused you or um, blamed you? And she says, no, Lord. Um, And he says, go and sin no more. And so that's a brief, I mean, I probably could have just read the passage at this point. Yeah, Um, it's okay. But... Anyways, um, I think this is a great example of one, we are, like we've already talked about, we are more than um, our sexual identity. We are more than our sin. Um, We are more than um, whether we have had sex outside of covenant of marriage or within how we view that. Um, Jesus cares about our heart and he cares about repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. And there is no sin. whether it's murder, um, adultery, sex outside of confines of marriage, um, reusing a stamp more than once, lying to your mom. Um, that Sorry, is, mom. That is outside of God's grace, outside of God's goodness, and outside of um, the realm of forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah, if God was interested in punishment, he would have left the law, the law in place, the law yeah. of Moses. So obviously we see that's not the case. So thank you, Jesus. Yeah, and we all have sin, and that John passage is always a good slap in the face, if you will, of like, yeah, yeah cast a stone, as if you have no sin, plenty of sin, every day, repent. Yeah, and we just had Ash Wednesday, right? That yeah. reminds you too, <laughs> like I'm a human and I make mistakes. Yeah, and so kind of going back to like what we said um, in the beginning, what I was talking about, and how the church has had um, language and messaging around sex as don't, don't, don't. I kind of wish sometimes we would take the model of what I think Jesus does here in John chapter 8 is, yeah, he's saying, hey, go and sin no more, but he's also offering the heart behind why and the the why behind the messaging. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing 
Uh, it's not in the notes, and this is going to be a long one, just uh, another warning. At this point, maybe we're just a 40, 45-minute podcast. We're, I don't know. We, we've got, we have the audience yeah. now. But something, and I think I talked with you, I've talked with a couple of people about this over the last several years, but one of the things I wish would happen more often with sexuality, especially in the church, is the positive aspect of talking about it, that it yeah. is a gift that it is something beautiful, that it is an intimacy that a husband and wife can share with each other, um, that is meant to be shared with one another, that it can be enjoyed. Um, those are good things. And sex is a good thing when it's done well, when it's done with care and love for your partner. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. And we don't teach that. I, was, I didn't grow up in the church. I was never taught that, even in a secular household. We never talk, never talked about sex. That was passe. Do not touch it. Just yeah. don't. But I always had the sense that it was bad. It was dirty. When you have health class, it's all about STDs and unwanted pregnancies and unwanted pictures. Right. So part of what I'm getting at with this is that we don't actually talk about the value yeah. of it. Um, we only talk about the devaluing of it. But I think to really grasp the importance of this we have to grasp the value of it first before we even think about how it might be devalued at some point. And then even if you talk about that, to also talk about how God can reconcile and redeem that. Yeah. Um, and I've seen so many bad examples. You shared one before we started this. One that I've seen way too many times is the balloon. So the, the pastor will blow the balloon up all the way, and then share every time you've done something wrong sexually, whether that's having sex before marriage or what have you, you lose a little bit of air. And then at the end of it, the more and more you do that, you have an empty balloon. That's not how God works. No. <laughs> God doesn't work on a balloon system where here's our set amount for whatever, whether the, you know, for this purpose, sex, um, and then you lose it every time you misuse it. That's God restores and redeems. That is who God is. That's who he's always been, so cut it out. Yeah, <laughs> and also talk about why sex is important, why it's valuable, and why it needs to be cherished uh, and protected in that way. So that's my thing. That's my agenda. That's something I hope I can, when I have kids, I can teach them well of yeah. why it matters that we we don't engage in these sexual sins because it is such a valuable piece of who we are. Yeah, that would be my my little opinion. Yeah. And yeah. there's just so much more I want to talk about on this. I but, know, I know, you know, but but we just can't because yeah. of time and there's too much. I mean, there's so many books about this, right? So right, but we're gonna we're gonna push ahead. So I can hear I can hear Michael in his head saying, "Well, where did this like where did the American church get its view on sex? Because there's a lot of history behind this. There's a lot of uh, Christian groups that had had influence, and we've talked about it. That's also why I can hear it." Because yeah. he said, I remember him saying to me one time, it's the Puritans. It's the Puritans are the reason. Well, Michael, that's half of it. So let me tell you. This is from the Ezra Institute. So uh, I'm just going to kind of read their paragraphs like I do with the history stuff because they always write it better than I would. Uh, so the Puritans are part of it. So we had the Puritans in America, and they had a bent towards returning to biblical sexuality because there had kind of been this uh, sexual awakening, if you will, where society got a lot more lax. 
Uh, so when they moved to America, they wanted to reestablish uh, the biblical norm of sexuality. So it says the Puritans, who were really responsible for the elevation of the significance of sex and romance within marriage and Western culture, because um, they were the heirs of Calvin, essentially, who was who was pretty strong on this. Uh, and we should not be surprised by this, since they regarded Scripture as the final authority for faith and practice, which I do as well. Um, certainly, they were also noted for taking seriously the penal sanctions of, for sexual sin in Scripture, um, some of which we mentioned, and there's a lot more, but not because they had a negative attitude towards sex. So this is something I didn't realize. Um, I always took the Puritans to be prudes, right? Um, And that's been a joke forever. Um, But actually, they weren't in the confines of marriage, Um, but on outside of that. On the contrary, it was because so they so highly valued the gift of marriage and the ordination of God regarding the sacred uh, sacred nature of sexual relationships that they protected it by law. So you do have the civil side that came from the Puritans, uh, which, if I'm thinking correctly, had obeyed certain sex positions, uh, obviously any sort of sexual relationship outside of marriage uh, between a man and a wife. So that is kind of where we get that side of things. Um, but they also saw sex as not simply um, necessary. It was a God-given blessing, Um, And they were kind of far, I like the way they put this, far from prudish pietism is the way that the Ezra Institute puts it. Uh, The Puritans, as illustrated in the work of Thomas Hooker, which, I mean, come on now. Come on. The irony. The irony of that name in this topic, I just (laughs) tell you. Anyways, sorry, I'll grow up. Uh, Truly expressed ardent passion in regards to love, and they regarded attempts at sexual abstinence for married couples as blind zeal and folly. So essentially... If you tried to be abstinent in your marriage, they were like, what are you... What are you doing? No, sex is a very important part of marriage. What are you doing? Uh, They were frank, uh, strongly sexed, and not without romance. So they were very passionate uh, about their romance and cared a great deal about it and saw that there was nothing wrong with enjoying that, um, contrary to popular belief. So there you go. Uh, It's a half-truth, if you will. Half-truth. Yeah, half-truth. But let me tell you about the Victorian oh, repression. The so we can uh, we can blame the English as always for this Western culture idea. So really, the Victorian era is responsible for the false caricature of Puritans, which of course they were, because Puritans left in a huff. Right. And the the British weren't happy about that. So uh, what do you know? I just can't. I, I Hamilton popped in my head just now. Oh, Hannah really uh, wants to watch it, and we haven't. Oh my gosh, it's so long. It's three hours. It's insanely good. Well, it's on the list. Anyways. Anyways. So they falsely characterized Puritan Puritanism, uh, portraying them as cold, passionless, and unromantic. This neo-Puritanism of the 19th century, which is the Victorian, um, marked by pr- prudery, which I've never heard. Prudery. I've never heard prude pronounced prudery. Uh, but anyways. And frigidity, <laughs> coldness, was actually a product of the Enlightenment uh, very heady period of time in the uh, heady, I should say, not heavy, but heady. Uh, the rise of humanistic rationalism exalted reasoning and denigrated other aspects of the human person. Feelings and emotions were repressed beneath a facade of stylized manners and rationality. So basically, don't have emotions, and as we all know, sex can be a very emotional, intimate act, and that is not good for rationalism. <laughs> 
Um, prostitution and pornography were rampant, actually, in Victorian England. Um, women were largely thought to be lacking in sexual desire, and wives were required to endure, not enjoy sex. So it was not something that you enjoyed at all. Uh, it was simply basically a business transaction, yeah. is what that sounds like to me, which is really sad. Uh, this is even worse. Pregnant women were expected to stay in their homes to avoid displaying the results of intercourse, and women were denied access to reading that might be sexually enlightening. Even Shakespeare. Which is wild. It's like, yeah. so you're telling me the only way people know that you had sex was because your belly was large? I guess. Um, like holding the baby at the farmer's yeah, market yeah. on that's Tuesday fine. afternoon. Yeah, that's fine. You just, that came in a basket. But you should be ashamed because for some reason you should be ashamed that you're having a kid. Right. And that you had to have sex to have that kid. It, yeah, I just, I, I don't get it. And it's just infuriating. Anyways, uh, and then the results of this false pietism were not good for marriage and did nothing to strengthen the marital bond. Shocker. Uh, Quite the opposite actually happened. By trying to eliminate the joy of sex from marriage, the Victorian Code degraded the sexual impulse and weakened the marital union. In direct contravention, which that's a fun word, Mm. of scripture, the Enlightenment man viewing himself as incarnate reason, which that's just ridiculous... And women as emotional flakes, wow, patronized, degraded, and subjected women as irrational and inferior. Marriage was essentially denied passion, and passion was regularly denied legitimacy. And the English wonder why they had defectors. (laughs) Goodness. Again, Sex is a gift. It is something to be enjoyed. It can be beautiful and passionate and romantic. Those are good things. It shouldn't just be this dirty procreation. I don't think God created it that way. And so I blame the Victorians for making all of us feel shameful. And they're the ones who brought the balloons and blew them up and took the (laughs) air out, which is just ridiculous. Those Victorians. <sighs> well, we could have said a lot more, but and who knows? We may circle back one day and yeah, Michael, say some you more. can text us again and tell us. Ah, I don't like the way you covered that, and we'll say, well, we'll cover it in a year from now. Yeah, <laughs> text it. Text text us another question in another way that allows us to talk, cover it. Maybe we will. Yes. But yeah, that was a lot. We know. Um, my gosh. Uh, not an easy um, subject to talk about because I know it. Whether it, it doesn't matter how much we say or what we say, like sex brings guilt and shame. Yeah. Um, in all of our most people's lives, I can't say all of yeah. ours. I can't blanket. Um, and that's sad, and it breaks my heart. Um, but know that you, no matter what. If you think you've messed up in this area, um, you are redeemable. God loves you. We love you. Um, and you have value and you have worth, uh, not only in God's eyes, but in our eyes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Preach. Well, uh, before we close, I'm wondering, very applicable, this wondering question. How many kids do you want, Jacob? Mm, Lord. Um. I mean, like, if I could have it my way, like, two, a boy and a girl, I'd have a girl first. Yeah. Um, Carol Ann has wanted, you know, four kids. Four? 
Carol she, Ann, why? I know. She's an only child, and so she definitely... That's, she doesn't have to overcompensate I, for that. I know. <laughs> but thankfully, I question mark, it's interesting. Like any, we'll see. Like, we'll go out to, like, coffee on a Saturday morning. Sure. Right? And there'll be a, parents with, like, four kids all under the age of 10. <sighs> and we've seen this multiple times, and every time Carol Ann sees it, she's like, oh, my gosh. And so I think she's, like two maximum three now and so i'm like yeah. i can't because i can't imagine trying to wrangle three kids like that are young oh, gosh i've been watching malcolm in the middle and uh, they're four boys yeah. and they're all chaos it's just awful so i can't imagine and i know one family that has four girls it's yeah it's just that's uh, a lot i mean blessings to all y'all out there who have more than two kids i know I was talking with Andrew. Y'all doing it? They had they had twins, right? And and if they have kids again, imagine if they have twins again. It's like, no. oh, you went for two and got four. No, thank you. Is that a buy one get one free kind of situation? <laughs> sure. Oh man, buy one get one ten times the cost. I, I'm kind of scared of having a girl because. I just feel like she'll break my heart. Oh, absolutely. And I'll be like, with boys, I feel like I could just be straight with a boy and be like, what are you doing? Knock it off. With a girl, it's like, oh, honey. Uh-huh. Why? <sighs> I want two, by the way. That's what that's what yeah. I want. Boy, boy and a girl. I would kind of like the opposite. I would like a boy first mm-hmm. and a girl. Um, I need an extra protector <laughs> for the girl. Um, but of course, I would be happy. It was so girls fun. are protectors too, Dylan. They are. They are uh, sometimes in more vicious ways, <laughs> which scares me. Um, I, Hannah and I were just talking about this, which was funny because we want two kids. We're very clear, very much on the same page with that. Uh, we'll take one at a time. I'm not gonna jump ahead. Um, but I asked if we had the same gender. What would you prefer? And she said, two girls. And I said, two boys. I was like, well, there you go. We'll find out. So either way, both of us are happy, or at least one of us will be happy. You know, hey, then that's kind of life. I'm just kidding. Well, I'll love my kids you will. way too much. It's true. It's going to be hard. And something that just popped in my head, I don't want to aggress too far, and so we'll end on this. I'm actually surprised that we didn't dive into like postmodernism when it comes to this topic. Well, and I'm not a postmodernist. I know you're not, but I figured you would at least like heart hate on some postmodernists for their view. I can't do that all the time. I know, but maybe we'll talk about postmodernism next. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um and then it would just be a rip fest because I would just rip on postmodernists the whole time. And I would defend it. So rip on modernists too, but whatever. Yeah. Well cool. Guys it was a long one. We love yes. you. We appreciate you. Like, share, comment, rate. Um, yeah. And we hope you stuck around. And if not, that's okay, too. <laughs> they won't hear that if they, they won't hear stick it. around. All righty. I'm Jacob. And I'm Dylan. And this is the I'm Wondering Podcast.